I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And anyone who thinks of the caliph, caliphate as a centralized totalitarian state is dead wrong. It will not last a day and it will be a horrible nightmare because it will never be Islamic. Since the destruction of the Ottoman Khilafah at the beginning of the 20th century, many Islamic movements were formed to recreate the very institution behind much of our historic ascendancy as an Umbah. These calls tended to be top-down projects that borrowed much from the nation-state authoritarian political models of the 20th century. Their vision for a caliphate was open to one-man rule, concentrated power and erosion of citizen rights. The consequent failure of the Arab Spring, albeit in its first wave, also challenged these 20th century movements, whose programmes were revealed to be ill-thought-through and the rise of ISIS, no matter how abhorrent and repulsive, merely showed the Muslim public why one needs to read more carefully Islamic political projects and their ambitions. My guest this week, Professor Overmir Anjum, has not given up on the duty to re-establish the Khilafah. Instead, he argues that any future reconstruction of this sacred institution has to be premised upon what he calls an ummatic framework, an ummah-centric model. He argues that the Rashidun model was fundamentally based on the consent of the ummah and through shura, that is consultation, and this is how the earlier caliphs successfully built an empire unlike any other. In this interview, I ask him to spell out what it means to think in an ummatic way and elucidate on the practicalities. Overmer Anjum is the Imam Khattab, Chair of Islamic Studies at the Department of Philosophy, University of Toledo. He wrote the article, Who Wants a Caliphate?, which I shall place in the show notes, together with an earlier interview I conducted with him. He is a prolific writer and a commentator on Islam and Muslim affairs. 
Professor Overmeer Anjum, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, and welcome back to the Thinking Muslim podcast. Alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Professor Anjum, you wrote your piece on the Yakin website, Who Wants a Caliphate, in late 2019. And in that article, you, you urged Muslims to develop a new consensus on the need for a caliphate. We spoke on this podcast a few months after publication. Since then, you began a project called the Ummatics Colloquium, and you are developing the Ummatics Institute, I understand. Tell me about this journey and what you discovered after writing your article, and what led you to create these initiatives. So the article was written after some two decades of thinking and, and study, and based on ideas that I developed in my uh, first book-length study, uh, which was a work for my dissertation, and other studies in which I explored the uh, existing Islamic discourse, um, and then, of course, the experience of the Arab uprisings um, and the geodevelop geopolitical developments where I saw both great threats and great opportunities for Muslims, uh, not the least of which, of course, the, what we saw in the context of the Second Gulf War, the rise of um, the terrorist outfit of ISIS, and the need for a new vision for Muslims. And when I say a new vision, I am thinking about how the 20th century, you know, late, middle to late 20th century, uh, there is the sahwa, there is a sense of reawakening of Islam, of Islam, Muslim societies, after a bout of nationalism, and uh, of course, first colonialism, and then secular nationalism, are uh, returning to Islam in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And there is a sense of exuberance, notwithstanding all kinds of critiques and limitations. And of course, very much a post-colonial reality where the world has been divided up and set up against you, right? There is a, a sense in that world of exuberance about Islam. Islam is the solution, right? You could say, well, that slogan is too simplistic, but it's also um, powerful and uplifting and one that allows Muslims young Muslims to look to the world and say, look, I want to solve the problems of existence. I want to solve the problems of the world. I want to go explore, right? Uh, and that energy, that optimism, I think is extremely important for any civilization, for any people to be alive. I think that ultimately is really the difference between those people who um, discover new worlds and 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 make scientific discoveries and and come together to solve their problems, and those who who don't, those who sort of uh, wait for others to take the initiative, and uh, human beings, of course, go through bouts of of, of both, uh, and we see uh, that around us. And I felt that that optimism was disappearing, or rather, you you could say disappeared overnight almost in the wake of the terrorist attacks of 9-11-2001 uh, and the global war on terror, uh, which allowed not only the West, but other state builders around the world 
to carry on their projects uh, and to uh, tyrannize their own Muslim populations um, using that global war on terror, whether it's China or India or what have you. So I felt that there is a state of sort of nightmare for Muslims, an absence of dreams. And secondly, there is a, so there is an opportunity on the other hand that comes from the parallel development in the world of a, of, of a global, a globalized world, a world that is, of course, we all know very, very unequal, but also it has created great opportunities for certain winners. Uh, and it never the, the, nevertheless has sort of intensified social interaction, exchange of knowledge, exchange of peoples uh, around the world, but especially among Muslims. Muslims from around the world are able to share sentiments, share a language, right? We are speaking English and many of people or people are speaking or learning Arabic or are traveling from one part of the Muslim world to the other. So there are the great opportunities and great uh, uh, threats. And, and then I was in the middle of, you know, I was in Tahrir Square in the summer of 2011 after uh, President Mubarak had stepped down as a result of popular peaceful protests. And that really just a moment of great exuberance for the Ummah. What was the road of Islam in the Arab Spring? Of course, I, I don't mean to imply that this was a great sort of kind of a great Islamic revolution, or Islamic uprising, but it was a moment of agency when a very large number of people could come together and talk and sort of express and feel alive. And then uh, there I also saw a great absence of an Islamic vision to move forward in an absence of an understanding of what the world was, what the problems were um, among uh, Muslim intellectuals across the board. And when I interviewed in late 2019, it was really about your article, Who Wants a Caliphate, found on the Yakin website. What was the response to that article? Uh, the response was both more positive and encouraging than I had realistically anticipated. But of course, I had also hoped for more, right, in the heart of my hearts. And I, I, I received notes of appreciation from places that I did not expect. Established Muslim professors, for example, in Western universities or but equally importantly, perhaps most more importantly, it's from the Muslims in the heartlands of Islam, uh, who's, uh, who stressed that for Muslims in the West to bring up the plight and hopes of the Ummah um, to the attention of the world and to teach Muslims how to dream and express their dreams uh, in this very unequal world. They felt empowered. They felt this was long overdue. Um, and they felt that, um, you know, they want to join and they want to to think of a different ways. They also, you know, there was also a, a, a uh, an indication that people wanted new solutions. Um, one thing that was, and, and that's really part of the project that we are undertaking, is that people wanted to know what new knowledge exists. Like, what are the social scientific knowledge, bodies of knowledge, humanities, uh, technical knowledge, scientific knowledge, right? So people, um, I think, are instinctively appreciative of human, sort of newfound human powers. And when 
uh, Islamic movements or some um, uh, Islamic discourses, either by the ulama, the traditionalists or the Islamists and whatnot, they don't take those things seriously um, or don't master them. I think that that is something that um, that is felt by Muslims who are looking for a solution, who are involved in the world in various capacities, who are globally mobile, upward moving Muslims who feel that there's so much more potential and that our, uh, ulama, our vision makers aren't doing enough. I think those people were really excited by uh, what they saw in the article and then later in the uh, in the Umatics Colloquia. So you've started up this program, the Ummatics Institute, and uh, that followed the Ummatics Colloquium, which uh, I understand still continues. So let's talk about this word Ummatics. Uh, what is it? Who coined it? And um, uh, how do how does it differ with uh, our general understanding of Ummah, uh, the need to believe in a transnational community of Muslims? Uh, right. So... My emphasis, in fact, for a very long time has been on the term and the concept of the ummah and ummatic. So let me talk a little bit about that. First of all, the word ummatic simply means pertaining to the ummah of Islam, the ummah of Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. It's something as simple as that, that which pertains to the ummah. But what's what's I think interesting about it is that just as the term politics relates to polis or the city state, uh, in in uh, in, in the ancient world, and then the nation state in the modern world, um, the word the word ummatics pertains in that sense to the ummah. So when we think about politics, right, we think about shared resources and shared experiences and shared interests, and how to negotiate. Right, the politics are is the language as well as the institutions through which people come together to negotiate a collected a collective existence. I coined this term, ummatics, over a decade and a half ago during my graduate studies, uh, and it appears in my 2012 book, Politics, Law, and Community in Islamic Thought, The Tamian Moment. When thinking about Islamic political thought, um, looking through the early and classical Islamic literature, I realized that words are crucial in both understanding and obscuring ideas, and the, and the word politics while still useful for Muslims in, in, in important respects, obscures a crucial aspect of Islamic quote-unquote political thought. So politics, you see, can be applied indiscriminately to any community that shares resources and, and, and you know, struggles for them and competes for them. But it didn't capture what the Quran and the Sunnah and the great ulama of Islam meant when they spoke of uh, the Muslim collectivity, when when they said, or other verses like that, that uh, refer to the collective affairs of Muslims um, and the hadith where the Prophet ﷺ speaks of, um, you know, the siyasa uh, uh, that the Israelite prophets used to do siyasa, offer a siyasa, management of the affairs of community. Um, or when the ulama uh, speak of the imama as an obligation or the khilafa as synonym for the imama. Uh, of course, the word imama and ummah are two sides of the same coin. 
right? And and that's really the the idea that I want to emphasize. Um, when we talk about the imamate, uh, the imama, literally that just means leadership of an ummah. Uh, an ummah could mean something as simple as collectivity, a group. Um, and this in this case, it's the group of that that is identified by the Quran in Surah Al Imran. Um, this is kuntum khayra ummatin ukhrijat linnas. So these are two titles that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives or ummatan wasatan and khayra ummatin that you are the best of community with these conditions that you are now the chosen community after the Israelites were a chosen community and um, and now you are being given this honor and you are ummatan wasatan you are the best community who is the most balanced. Now, when this ummah is mentioned, there, there are clearly what we would consider uh, political connotations here because this ummah has agency. This ummah has some job to do, but this isn't a person. When you assign a person a job, you assume that they can do, that they have able, they're able to make choices, they're able to act. They have the rational capacity and intellectual capacity and physical capacity to act. Well, when you assign a job to a group of people, right, even if it's a small group of people, imagine yourself giving a job at work to a, a team. You're assuming that they're going to act as a unit because you're giving them giving them a job with a certain, a certain set of goals. And this means that there is an internal organization that is required. Um, and and one scholar uh, makes a great point about this, that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, that you are the best of the community that has been both brought forth for humankind, there are two elements. One is to be khayra ummah, and being the best of community is an, is an internal sort of, it's a, it's a description of the virtue, virtuous, virtue of the community of piety and faith commitment meaning that you're internally in yourself among yourself within your ranks virtuous and pious you commit to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that requires a certain kind of internal amr bil ma'ruf munkar it requires establishing prayers and other you know charity and so on and so forth but then the 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 next phrase turns to uh the world outside, that you have a job for the world, right? And this is an inherently political command because now this collectivity, this group of people uh, is being told that you don't even, you don't have, uh, you don't merely have your personal lives to live and improve yourself um, and, and achieve piety in your personal lives, but you have a job as a collectivity. So Muslims qua Muslims, those who are addressed by the Quranic phrase, the key Quranic phrase, Ya ayyuhalladina amanu. Right? When, when, you, when, you, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses them as a collectivity, and then all the commands right in the Quran, uh, the key commands come this way. So they're given to the ummah. So that's very much a political command. And that's the idea that I'm trying to uh, capture. Ummatan wasatan. What does it mean to be uh, a community that is uh, that has these two aspects, that it's internally 
uh, it must manage its uh, relationship to God individually, each individual and, and families and uh, communities within it. But then it has a collective responsibility. So that's what uh, ummah and the word ummatics is trying to capture, that when we talk about politics, we often mean a territory, a nation state, and a management of the affairs of that nation state. But when we talk about ummatics, therefore, we are talking about something um, beyond just that. And that's interesting. I'm trying to join the dots, Then You start off in 2019, uh, you talk about the caliphate. And uh, you've now uh, you've you've uh, and you've you've explained what ummatics means, but you've you've developed this theory, this idea of transnational, I suppose, politics based on uh, Islamic norms. What is the relationship between ummatics and caliphate? Like, how do you see these two concepts coming together, or do they come together? Yeah, to me, there are two sides of the same coin. Just as even, you know, linguistically, imam and ummah are connected. An ummah is, in fact, defined by an imam. And the imam could be a book, could be an idea, uh, and a, or a person. Um, so in that sense, and already going back to my, uh, my book, there is a tension that I identify uh, that develops after the Rashidun period between a ruler-centered vision of Islam, you could say imam-centered vision of Islam, and an ummah-centered vision of Islam. And the tension there is that the Prophet wasallam is the recipient of the divine mission, of, of and he is infallible in so far as he conveys that mission. He is infallible as a witness uh, of God that, that who is who is conveying God's message, and also, as Allah says in the Quran, Thus we have made you a middle balanced community so that you will stand in witness to humankind, just as the Prophet uh, Rasul will stand in witness to you or against you, right? So it could be to or against, depending on how we respond to it which means that our relationship to the world is what is the same as the relationship of the prophet of rasul sallallahu to us you could take this in two different ways now after the prophet sallallahu uh, passes who does this charisma this job this duty this great mission pass to it passes to the entire ummah right that's the quranic idea it doesn't pass to one particular person, one particular family, one particular institution. It passes to the community. And then how does this community carry out its job? That is done through uh, shura, through you know, electing one person to, to, to hand over this responsibility. Hey, take care of our affairs. But that's secondary, and that's the key point in the ummatic or ummah-centered vision of Islam, that the, the recipient of this mission is the ummah, which then appoints an imam. Now, the other interpretation that emerges in late first century and second century of Islam, both in the, um, among the Umayyads and their opponents, 
some Shia sects, um, is that it is the Imam that has the person that has the charisma that is infallible or, um, you know, there are different attributes that are given to it by the Umayyads and by the Shia sect. I use the word, word Shia sects because originally Shia Ali, uh, the party of Ali, عن, that party is uh, not the same as the Shia sects that, that emerged. But nevertheless, the point is that it is the Imam now that becomes the center of this 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 theological mission. The Imam has the charisma. And sort of the Ummah is secondary. Ummah is there to carry out your orders, if you will. Um, and then as history progresses, um, you have these two visions competing throughout Islamic history. My argument is uh, in the book, and I believe this is the doctrine of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah as well, that it is the Jama'ah, uh, the, the community, that is the recipient of this mission. And that, hence the idea that the community, when it agrees on something, it cannot be wrong. For the Sunnis, there is no person after the Prophet ﷺ that has that honor, that they are infallible. Only the Ummah is infallible only when it agrees. Uh, the famous uh, hadith of the Prophet So um, that is where I see theologically why we must begin with the Ummah, even when we are talking about the Khilafah and the Imamah. Uh, and secondly, I believe that the word Caliphate and Imamate can be overused and abused with if it is not about the ummah it can be used as it was early on in early islamic history to simply claim and garner authority uh, for one person or one group of people and to do good political thought to do good ummatic thought we must but put the ummah at the center and uh, to avoid the kind of almost laughable claims that are made by uh, people, either Daesh or other people who, who claim that, you know, they are the caliphs. Well, you are, how could you be a caliph, right? Regardless of your atrocities and terrorism, apart from your conduct and your actions and your ethics and all of that, uh, if you're not protecting the Ummah, if you're not caring for the Ummah, if you're not responsible to the Ummah, if you haven't, um, uh, if you if you don't have the relationship to the Ummah that is described in um, in the best of our moments of Khilafah, whether you look at the actions of Abu Bakr when he says, I'm not the best of you, if I'm wrong, correct me, right? Or Umar, when he says, um, you know, uh, my relationship to the ummah is the relationship of a um, of a of principal to an orphan who has been given the war award. The property belongs to the orphans. I'm only taking care of it um, on their behalf. Or Ali when he describes four crucial functions uh, of an imam. Uh, which are defense of the ummah, distribution of resources among the ummah, and, and so on. None of those apply when 
you simply claim that you are a caliph. So anyway, that's uh, those are my motivations for emphasizing the ummah before the imam. So, uh, I mean, that's really fascinating. This ummah-centric model you put forward. I mean, it sounds very similar to, I don't know how Western philosophers would describe the, the social contract. Where do you see the place of the ruler in Islam? What is the role, the principal function of the ruler? If the ummah is, is passing to the ruler uh, the, the role of governance, what role does he serve? So, first of all, I want to say that the paradigm I have is really just, it's its there already in classical Islamic discourse. If you read Lahkam al-Sultaniyah, uh, which is written in the 5th century of Hijra, uh, which is really a summary or culmination of this discourse from earlier centuries, the Imam or the Khalifa is... Um, there to stand in relation to the ummah that the prophet had alayhi salam insofar as he was a leader but without having infallibility and prophethood right literally that's how it's defined um, um and and that definition of the khilafah really remains you know in diff through different wordings but it remains pretty constant and throughout uh, islamic sunni discourse caring for the ummah both the deen of the ummah and then the siyasat of the ummah through that deen. The word siyasa, by the way, it, it comes from um, caring for the horses. Uh, the word sa'is is somebody who manages the horses. Um, and in, in that sense, managing the needs of a community, um, that's, that's a siyasa, the word that's used for Khalifa. Now, the question now is, what is the distribution of authorities uh, and, 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 and powers? Um, and there you have, uh, of course, great tension between the Imam-centered vision of Islam, in which the Imam is sometimes given absolute authority and considered uh, infallible uh, or not infallible, but untouchable. Right, so either there's a moral, moral uh, infallibility and untouchability, or simply power, might is right. In its worst forms, might is right, um, because God has given you power, and therefore a kind of a um, uh, sort of a jungle law kind of morality and theology is imposed on that. That Umayyads, certain Umayyads would say, for example, because we are in power, God must have chosen us. And therefore, by necessity, regardless of our conduct, uh, we must be obeyed. And, and so, so Imam becomes the center. That was not the case either in the conduct of the early caliphs or in the actual Islamic political uh, uh, ulama uh, discourse, right? So if you look at the Greek or Persian-influenced discourse, you do find absolutist vision visions of the ruler. But if you look at um, the powers of the Khalifa, either in theory or in practice, they were never absolute. So in theory, for example, the Khalifa is um, answerable to and lives by the Sharia and is not above the law and must you know, if 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 the if he should be a mujtahid, should be a an independent reasoner. Um, but if not, 
so must uh, uh, listen to the ulama. One of the earliest treatises in this um, tradition is that of Imam Abu Yusuf, the famous student of Abu Hanifa, uh, rahimahumullah. And Abu Yusuf, you, if you look at his Kitab al-Kharaj, the Book of Taxation, which is one of the earliest complete texts we have on politics uh, in, in Islam, um, he died in the year 180, I believe 182 of Hijrah. So, um, and he was the grand Qadi of the chief Qadi of uh, Harun al-Rashid, the most prosperous and powerful Abbasid Caliph. And if you look at how he describes the job of the Khalifa, he says one of the things, you know, among other things, if to be pious and and you know, obey Allah and a messenger, but he, then he says you also have to follow the sunnah of the imams um, of fiqh, meaning he is referring to, Abu Yusuf is referring to Abu Hanifa, and Abu Hanifa um, and people like him who were Persians, who were outsiders who came into Islam, right? In the pecking order of the day, they were nobodies. Their power was that they were speaking on behalf of the book of Allah and the sunnah of Muhammad and the truth. Um, and so Abu Yusuf is saying, that you, Harun al-Rashid, have to live by the ijtihad of somebody like Abu Hanifa and the ulama and of the, of the Salaf. You're far from absolutist, right? Not only can you not disobey the Quran and the Sunnah, but even on matters that the Quran and Sunnah are silent, you uh, turn to the ulama. And this remains the case throughout, and you know I discussed that that in my book. But in practice, you see, uh, of course, uh, Muslim rulers sometimes um, uh, act in ways in the same way that Muslims act in ways that are not Islamic. Uh, but you find that as soon as Islamic order um, and Islamic jurisprudence and law become established and respected that changes in all of the, you know, any regime. So you could look at the Ottomans, for example, early Ottomans before Islamic law becomes well-established, they do act arbitrarily. But when Islamic law becomes established uh, after the 16th century or, or, or onward, there are cases when uh, the caliphs, sultans are deposed based on a fatwa uh, of, of a judge. So, my point is simply that the caliph's powers are not absolute. Uh, from your from your answer, Bay, uh, it seems that the ulama acted as the uh, as the restraining power. The ulama acted as you know, I, I suppose in in your ummatic paradigm, uh, representatives of the ummah uh, who looked to who ensured that a ruler uh, judged by Sharia and and dispensed justice. Um, are we bound by this model? So in any future caliphate, would we have a group of ulama uh, who would act as judges, who would represent Muslims in general, and uh, they would be tasked at uh, impeaching the caliph if he or, um, uh, uh, reneged on his obligations? Yes, uh, for the most part. Um, but let me sort of tweak that a little bit. Uh, at least, you know, as I as I said, there are at least four models of how 
caliphs related to the Ummah in Islamic history. The first one, that of the Rashidun model, was the uh, ideal model that uh, Sunnis recognize as the ideal, all the four caliphs, and the Shia recognize the fourth caliph, Ali radiallahu anhu, um, as the ideal caliph, uh, ideal conduct of ruler. These people did not act arbitrarily, uh, but they were also ruling over a, uh, a small city that was growing rapidly, and those institutions um, that they had uh, at their disposal were not quite scalable. And as soon as, you know, overnight you turn into a world-embracing empire, those institutions of uh, simple face-to-face -face institutions of that are based on piety and, and you know, did not scale. And we had um, the, the Umayyads developed new institutions, borrowed from others, uh, the Abbasids developed their own, borrowed from Persians, for example, the Persian Empire, um, and uh, pious Muslims reacted to that in various ways. And I, you know, I don't want to go into how that happened, both institution, in terms of institution and discourse, the, the ulama and and ahl taqwa, if you will. Uh, what uh, if you if you read uh, Marshall Hodgson? the great American historian of mid-20th century, when he referred to them, he called them Sharia-minded Muslims, which is interesting because we normally think of early Muslims as everybody was Sharia-minded, but that was not the case because of the lack of, um, literally, really just lack of education and means of uh, means of education. So uh, those who were concerned with, with Sharia, with Islam, uh, primarily, and were modified, if you will, they were they were uh, there. They had uh, uh, those values as their primary values, as opposed to these being tribal people who sort of became Muslim. These Sharia-minded Muslims, when they saw that the empire has lost mechanisms of ensuring that the Khalifa, the Imams, are pious, they did two things. At least two that I want to point out. One. They never said that the Khilafah or the Caliphate is not necessary, not important. We have plenty of studies that show that the ulama always considered the Khilafah to be the primary oblig obligation in Islam. Yet at the same time, they developed independence. Um, law in Islam, right, famously developed in private circles and sometimes in critical relationship, often in critical relationship to government, uh, both the Umayyads and then the Abbasids. And these ulama became leaders of these, uh, if you will, this check and balance against uh, the powers of the caliphs, when the caliphs were powerful. But then there are other models where, so there is the Rashidun model, Number one, number two, what I call the imperial model of caliphate, later Umayyads and then Abbasids, who were actually in power. Think of Harun al-Rashid or, uh, you know, Abdul Malik ibn Marwan. Um, and then the third model is when they lost uh, actual power, but retained uh, enormous prestige that all of these various Muslim sultans who sort of took away you know, after the fragmentation of the Abbasid Empire, who who had uh, local 
rulers, these sultans or governors, they continued to pay homage to the Abbasid Caliph in Baghdad, even though the Caliph himself did not have military control over these um, in terms of sort of symbolic power and legitimacy and social structure, the, the caliph remained the head of, of this structure throughout. So much so that famously Imam al-Ghazali, rahimahullah, um, in uh, 6th century of, uh, of Hijra uh, and um, 11th, early 12th century of, of Common Era, wrote that if the caliph, if the caliphate ends, so will legitimate Sharia-based shari, shari life, because our marriages and contracts of that, that make social life possible are, are dependent on the Qadis who are appointed and authorized by the Khalifa. So there is, this is the third model in which you have a caliph uh, as a symbolic head of life that is otherwise governed locally in a number of different ways. Uh, and then a, you could say a fourth model appears, which is similar to the second model, when the Ottomans come and over time in the 16th, 17th centuries claim uh, the same kind of powers that the early Abbasids have, meaning that both um, the person of the Caliph and the actual power uh, goes back in the person of the Ottoman Sultan. Um, and, and of course, one could argue that a fifth model of caliphate is emerging in the 19th century when, um, because of uh, European pressure, modernization, um, the Ottoman caliphs submit to a constitution. This model, of course, doesn't last very long, but it's a conceivable model. One thing that I want to say in all of this is that we typically think, and, and I think that it's, it's an important historical uh, block we have in our minds that, that we think anachronistically, that we think that the way to, to check and balance the power of a sovereign is through well-articulated rational institutions like the parliament, like periodic elections, and, and so on and so forth. But these are institutions that make sense and that can function only under certain modern circumstances of post-capitalist societies, individualistic societies, in which there is enormous sort of uh, flow of information available. Uh, but these institutions would have no meaning in a pre-modern world. So the essence of what we're talking about is check and balance. How can the power be checked by uh, mechanisms uh, of sharia and, and justice. And that is being done in different ways in these different times. So the ulama are not a rationally articulated institution, a class of people or a parliament or chosen people, but they are natural leaders of the people. Presumably, um, if we were to take these four models or five models that you've articulated, um, you could possibly, you could conceivably in today's technological age, in, in today's era where we do have uh, liberal democratic institutes that formally check the power of the central authority, could you imagine 
institutions that are quite analogous in a modern caliphate to, say, the United States? Yes, very much so. Uh, only in so far as so I don't want to be misunderstood. Only in so far as the United States um, and and this uh, the founding of the United States is a, a remarkable act because a relatively large number of people are able to articulate institutions that govern them and distribute their freedoms uh, and, you know, and check and figure out a system of checks and balances, which isn't natural and organic, but rather constituted through an act of people who come together and write an institution, constitution. But remember, checks and the idea of check and balance is not new in human history at all. What is interesting in uh, United States or other uh, institutions like, say, the European Union, is that these are rational institutions that people come together and, and, and sort of figure out these are the norms. Uh, that's, these are the, you know, uh, these are the ways in which we're going to distribute powers. Now, in pre-modern Islamic societies, check and balance, I argue, is much more organic and in some ways much more successful. How so? I, I only say some ways, right? In some ways, it's less successful. Um, today, for example, take a typical liberal democracy and witness its decline into descent into a dictatorship. Is that not a common sight? I would say it's very common, right? It's something that we constantly worry about. And in the United States, in the last decade, people have been, you know, screaming, like, hey, we're turning into to this or that. But that's common, right? In in this really couple hundred years of experiment of democracy, uh, many democracies have, have descended back into uh, dictatorships, uh, precisely because those articulated institutions of separation of uh, these three different you know, branches of, of government, for instance, um, the judiciary, the executive, the legislative, the separation doesn't last because power tends to aggregate. Those who are in power get together with people with money to exploit the rest. That story is still the story of the modern nation state. So then how does this work in, in, in Islamic past? Uh, in 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 the in the medieval age or or middle period, well, you have much more organic limits on the powers of the ruler, whether it's a sultan or a khalifa uh, or a king. One, uh, there are natural limits because the capacity of the ruler to rule is extremely limited. The ruler does not give law, for instance. That's the biggest thing. The biggest difference compared to the modern nation state, which makes the law, gives, interprets the law, and then applies the law, does all the three main functions of the law. And therefore, if the three branches of the modern nation state come together and, and coalesce, um, they have absolute and totalitarian power, which is impossible in, in pre-modern Islam. Um, why is it impossible? Because number one, the ruler does not give the law. Ruler is... Uh, ruler or government, right? They're, they're all the ruler and the ruler's family and, uh, and 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 military come together. Do not have the right 
to give the law. All they can do is make policies that are different from the real law, sharia. They can only make siyasa at best, right? And siyasa is temporary. It changes from ruler to ruler. So that's number one. Number two, the ruler does not promulgate the law. It is the qadis who are trained as first and foremost ulama, is, you know, who, who's answer, who are answerable to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, and to their communities. And there are practical examples. Uh, for instance, the, when the Abbasids want to chain, appoint qadis that are preferable to them in Egypt, for example, at their height, the Egyptians refuse to listen to qadis Hanafi qadis in a Maliki community doesn't work. So this tells you that even at their height, the, the Khalifas are limited by um, even what qadis they could appoint, limited by their negotiating power. If the, if the local community doesn't accept, um, then uh, your power is limited there. So we have very organic mechanisms by which um, the powers of the ruler are... Uh, limited, the ruler doesn't make the law, doesn't promulgate the law, doesn't interpret the law. Uh, really, in some ways, as Professor Weil Halak has argued in, in his book, uh, The Impossible State, the ruler, uh, especially medieval sultan, is like a glorified butler who simply applies the law and manages the affairs, affairs of the state. This cannot be the case in the age of the modern nation state where the mechanisms of government and control of population and surveillance uh, and social engineering are enormous. And so populations need po protections against such enormous powers. Um, and also they need to be much more involved in choosing their rulers. There was a time where who the ruler was didn't matter so much. It's kind of like as important as choosing your butler. If the butler, butler's identity didn't matter so much because the powers of the butler are relatively limited. Now it's so much more important that uh, the, you know, if you think about the four models of the caliphate that we talked about, we are closer to the first model, the Rashidun model, because the powers of the caliph, or perhaps the second model, and therefore, uh, like in the Medina, uh, early Medina, the actual piety and conduct of the ruler mattered a lot because it's a small community that holds the ruler accountable. So there, there are two things that I'm saying. One, we cannot go back to uh, the middle period model uh, where there are organic checks and balances and limited power that's available to the ruler because those assumptions do no longer exist. And the second thing I'm saying is that in some ways, this is not the end of the world, but rather we are in some ways, we have the opportunity to go back and learn more directly from the early models. You, uh, In your answer there, you talked about the structure or shape of uh, these five models of caliphates. And um, from my understanding, then, from what you've described, um, could you envisage, because we know from Islamic history that, um, I mean, you, you've described the different periods of history, but we know or we were led to believe that the caliphate is a very centralizing state where the caliph has power, but also the caliph has ultimate rights over decisions, so over decision making and policy making. Uh, could you envisage a modern caliphate to share 
maybe some of those qualities of the interregnum period you describe between the Abbasids and Abbasid period and the Ottoman period, where you have a, a high degree of what we would today term federalism, where local communities are able to uh, conduct their policy affairs almost uh, completely separate from uh, the central state. Yeah, so let me begin by saying that that model isn't seen by the very ulama who inhabit those lands and and, and theorize that uh, as ideal, right? Even in fact, Al-Ghazali uh, refers to this situation where the sultan has more power and the sultan doesn't have the requisite piety and knowledge as uh, eating carrion, which is haram, but you do it because you don't have an alternative. So let me be clear about that, that there is something that's not quite uh, acceptable, uh, although I think that in general, if you look at particularly uh, Imam Abu Hassan al-Mawardi, he does have a a little more uh, sanguine attitude about this. So what what is the distribution of powers there? The caliph uh, at least formally appoints the judges, and the the actual sultan in power, um, you know, would would pick the next caliph, for example, from a given family. So the powers of picking the caliph are limited. Uh, there could be, of course, intrigue and all of that involved. Um, so we do have it, it's not ideal, right? I don't want to set this up as an ideal next to, for instance, the early Islamic ideal of the Rashidun caliphs, but. Uh, this isn't. This is, uh, you know, has the advantage, perhaps, that this is a practical model that govern a very large um, territory over a long period of time. Um, now, of course, technologically, I believe we are much more capable of doing better institutional design than was possible at that time. By the way, I should say that you know, even in the Ottoman period you have a similar kind of situation where even though the act, the, the caliph has, uh, a sultan has powers, but it's a very um, hands-off system of government. Outside of Istanbul, partly because of sort of limitations, the government is hands-off. Uh, now, if you're going to go back to that model, and I think we, we should think about that, it has to be designed. It isn't merely a limitation of Capacity, it has to be a limitation based in principle. But what are the distributions? I think that throughout Islamic history, the caliphate has ruled with a relatively light hand, uh, in some ways by necessity, because already in the time of Prophet non-Muslims have dhimma contracts and live by their own laws, by their own norms. Um, And that, of course, under the Ottomans becomes more regulated as a millet system at some point, but uh, that is sort of a built-in feature of Islam that uh, Islamic government has to respect the fact that there are people whose beliefs are different and they're going to live by their own beliefs. But if that is the case, then you know that kind of respect also has to apply to Muslim communities, to various groups of Muslim communities. Um, by almost by necessity, because Muslims are going to look at non-Muslims and say, well, these guys have so much freedom, why don't we? 
um, right? We we don't, you know, you know we, we accept you as a caliph, but we don't think that you are the most pious guy and we have our own imams. This is almost a built-in feature uh, of Islamic government that whenever you put into place the main Islamic assumptions about, uh, you know, what Sharia, uh, the rights that Sharia gives people, one of the things that happens is local life develops um, based on local religious authorities. So I think that some a high degree of federalism is a built-in feature of Islamic law. And anyone who thinks of the caliph, caliphate as a centralized totalitarian state is dead wrong. It will not last a day and it will be a horrible nightmare because it will never be Islamic. Because Sharia fundamentally considers uh, life within a community as a right, even to non-Muslims who, according to Sharia, are mistaken in their beliefs, but they have the right to live by their beliefs, right? So you could think of that as in Islamic law, it's a is as close as we get to a human right, individual uh, life, but a communal life, right? Communal life is almost, you know, it's it's one of the fundamental human conditions of existence in, in Islam. And whenever you are going to Sharia in any kind of, you know, no matter what ijtihadat you make, if you're going to stick to the Sharia in any recognizable sense, you'll have to give people those rights. Prasandam, I wonder whether your understanding of the caliphate is shared by uh, by many Muslims. Um we know that um, if we just were to survey, I don't know, the Muslims of Nigeria or Pakistan, they see democratic governance to be uh, pretty much a failed project. Uh, they are economically in the doldrums. They face uh, daily uh, crises. And I suppose the, the call that comes from the street is for a strongman government. And many connect that strongman government to Islam and 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 maybe the the reading of islamic history is not as refined as as you know as you've just laid out but ne- but nevertheless there is a a belief that uh, the modern nation state with its options and its freedoms have uh, led us to a poorer path and and made us uh, into into people who've got the freedom to uh, to act in a profane way and and to to uh, to act contrary to the Sharia. Uh, so there is this uh, call in the Ummah to return to or to uh, embrace a type of polity, which I suppose would be regarded as being something closer to a Chinese model, an authoritarian model, perhaps. Uh, do you see this? And is that a challenge you feel uh, we need to address when confronting this subject in the Ummah. Yes, absolutely. I think that Muslims look. Don't, you know, when when you when you talk about what Muslims are thinking at any given period of time, there isn't one thing. First of all, there are fashions. Uh, you know, it really. If you look at the surveys, of course, Muslims generally are in favor of unity and unification, and generally in favor of. Uh, caliphate has great resonance with Muslims. The more religious people get, um, the more likely. But also, people like democracy. Uh, if you look at two thousand, you know, or two thousand in the decade of two thousand, uh, survey was done, which was published in two thousand seven by Gallup. Uh, most Muslims, up to eighty uh, percent, like both democracy and Sharia, or rather, 
80% like democracy, 80% believe in Sharia. And I'm sure there is a great overlap between the two, right? To some degree, these are opinions of ordinary people depend on the existing discourse, which is kind of like uh, weather, it changes. But, but what we can sense underneath that, I think, is that yes, there is a sense in which the Chinese CCP is seen as much more successful in resisting the West, for instance, in taking care of the needs of a very large number of poor, non-Westernized people. Um, that is true, I think, but uh, that's also mistaken in my view. Um, there were some 28 to 40 million people killed in China in the Great Leap Forward. Uh, that is greater than what we can imagine in the Middle East today, uh, despite all that ISIS and these states are doing, that number is far, far greater. So I think that, uh, first of all, no, we don't want that. Uh, second of all, there is a benefit. Historically, China has had for thousands of years a developed state, but it has no concept of the rule of law or accountable um, government. Whereas in Islamic civilization, we haven't had a good, strong tradition of a centralized state. We have had a very strong tradition of rule of law, rule of divine law. So to some degree, China is falling back to its historical strength. And the historical strength of the Islamic world is not the same. Um, now, Finally, I do understand the need that people have uh, for a strong man, a righteous strong man in this case, somebody who will uh, stop all this corruption. And that is not unusual, uh, that in fact, people who live in large systems uh, where there are a lot of middlemen who are corrupt, people like that tend to want a strong government that will take care of those middlemen. Uh, and their corruption. Uh, so I think that those are part of parts of the, uh, the design that needs to take place, where we do need good, efficient government in various localities. But I am sure that, let's say, people in Pakistan or Afghanistan would not like to be governed by somebody who is sitting, let's say, in Turkey or Riyadh. They would not like that, no matter what they are saying today. What they will accept is a strong government in Afghanistan, strong government in Pakistan, that is unified and that maybe sits on a fair council in Riyadh or Istanbul or what have you. People do have, these nation states have created local cultures and local identities. I don't think they need to be destroyed. They are, you know, I am, as a historian, I'm respectful of history. And I do not like utopian projects that do not respect people's lived experiences. So both from an Islamic theory perspective, but also very much from the empirical perspective, I think that governments that do not respect local knowledge, local needs, local sentiments, fail. We know that uh, when we consider projects, supranational projects around the world, like the European Union project, which I suppose is the most integrated 
union in the world. Uh, the ideas of this union, the the general uh, uh, parameters of what the European Union would look like in terms of its supranational unit, uh, were laid out in papers many decades before uh, the 1950s when uh, the first um, aspects of this union were created. Uh, I wonder how important in your mind is it uh, to explain what the caliphate, this modern caliphate, would look like in a in a detailed form? And, and uh, secondly, how important is it to convince large numbers of people, the Muslim masses, the intellectuals, the ulama of this model? I think this is very important, but also I start with the assumption that the ummah is already ummatic. Most Muslims think ummatically. Um, there are blockers, if you will, that prevent us from acting in ummatic ways. So I don't think that Muslims have to be convinced uh, that this is a good thing. Muslims rather have to be convinced that this is feasible, this is good, and this is what you need to change in order to make this happen. Um, but also to go back to your earlier question of uh, is an omatic discourse uh, needed for, or could this be a top-down sort of revolution or top-down takeover? And I believe very strongly that an nomadic discourse is necessary. In fact, I would go so far as to say that if there were a takeover tomorrow and one single pious, righteous Muslim ruler took over, I would say that the nomadic discourse would be no less necessary. The reason is that we know from history, we know from our history, we know from our tradition uh, that power has to be held accountable. In so far as we know that governments represent their people, whether they like or not, governments are uh, reflections of the expectations and habits and needs of their paper, of their people, and the other way around as well. The people, uh, of course, are influenced by the kinds of rulers that are that are chosen. Uh, but to speak of the that one side for now, which is that people, what they're thinking, but they're what they expect as uh, how they should be governed has enormous impact, even in dictatorships and monarchies. You cannot imagine a more uh, unequal uh, monarchy where there is no check and balance than Saudi Arabia today. Its power comes from oil that comes from outside, from its American masters, from the world. It doesn't have to care about its pe people. But if you look at the propaganda, to look at how much it actually does depend on the opinions of its people, it's it's uh, it's remarkable that even, and there's of course a lot of scholarship in literature that shows that even dictatorships depend crucially on people agreeing with this is how they're going to be governed to, to a large degree. At least the elites have to agree. And um, to give you an example, when Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is insulted, Muslims come out and Muslim governments follow. Okay. The masses lead and Muslim governments follow. They find this to be useful way to, to you know, to vent uh, you know, popular uh, anger and so on. They, these same governments who know that they could not insult the Prophet ﷺ, they will massacre large chunks of their population and take away their rights because they know that people are not going to come out on the street for those, right? Well, that is the problem. 
right? That is what needs to change because this, uh, uh, right? This, our imaginative, imagined caliph, what is the guarantee that that person is not going to turn into an MBS or an MBZ or uh, a, uh, a tyrant of one kind or another? If people are not, um, if people don't expect to be governed in ways that are uh, fair and just and accountable. So I think that that's why this discourse is absolutely necessary. And in my view, a much more likely scenario is a mixture of uh, cracks in the system, people emerging, uh, populist leaders who sense that this is what people want, and then a, a discourse is pushed in a certain way, which I think we are already seeing today and, and for some time. Um, Dr. Anjum, you live in the West. Um, you want to establish an institute, the Umatics Institute here in the West. Uh, but a caliphate is not going to arrive in the West. Uh, what then is your relationship with the Muslim majority world? How can your institute make connections with activists and thinkers on the ground in Turkey, in Saudi Arabia, and in Pakistan? Right. So I think that for one, I want to also say that relationship to the West, something that I haven't spoken uh, to yet, I think that it's very important to understand and to, re to restate what you just said, that what we imagine at the Omatics Institute, and that's the that's the, the vision, is an, an Islamic civilization in the in the heartlands of Islam, one that is based in you know historical institutions and memories and desires of people, not you know to take over the world, but rather one that thinks of the world in terms of. Uh, civilizational coexistence rather than mm. clash of civilizations. And as such, I believe that um, Western civilization um, is does not need to be an enemy, uh, as many people, religious and non-religious, uh, for various reasons, tend to think. Um, in Any more than Eastern civilization, any more than China will be your enemy or friend. Uh, I think that Islamic civilization needs to develop an attitude that Winston Churchill taught, that we don't have permanent friends or enemies, we have permanent interests. And I think that that's what, how Muslims need to think, that we have umatic interests. Muslim minorities uh, in the West will, I hope, continue to live and prosper, despite all the signs sometimes to the contrary. I heard your podcast, for example, with a, with a, uh, with a uh, uh, French uh, Muslim, and it was really heartbreaking of what uh, it's happening to Muslims in Europe. Um, but we hope that this is going to continue, and we hope that the caliphate is going to negotiate a better, more respectable existence for Muslim minorities as well. In in a sense, this uh, idea is very much one that thoughtful, uh, uh, moral people in the world should support. Uh, in the you know whether Muslim or non-Muslim, um, because um, if if uh, the Muslim world right now is on the verge of uh, breakdown, uh, failed states, and that means millions and millions of refugees on the shores of Europe and 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 you know Euro America, and to prevent that, if nothing else, we need to think about uh, stopping the current 
policy regime in the Muslim world of dividing and ruling and conquering and oppressing and exploiting. Um, so uh, what can we do as Western Muslims? I think that for one, we can convey this message to um, uh, to what Western elite. I don't even think of Western countries as an, uh, as a unity anymore. I think that the elite live in a different world and they are the ones who are responsible for the misery of their own people and the world uh, world over. We need to be conduits of uh, this voice of, of Muslims uh, around the world. I ask, the liberal world order is going through a pretty rocky period, uh, but what underpins its success over the last century uh, so far as uh, as far as wealth generation is concerned, is I suppose capitalism's ability to generate enormous amounts of wealth and to take large numbers of people out of poverty. Even China, which boasts a, an alternative model, is not free from this, um, uh, this global network of capitalist countries that uh, all benefit from, um, uh, from interdependence. How easy is it going to be for any Islamic government to break free uh, from uh, from uh, global capitalism? And I suppose the capacity then to, to demonstrate how an Islamic economic model will serve humanity uh, is probably going to be one of the most important factors in convincing those Muslim elites in Pakistan or in Turkey uh, to switch away from economic liberalism uh, to an Islamic project. How important is in developing this uh, thinking about Islamic economy to this Ummatic project? First of all, I want to make a small intervention. I think what happens with globalization with the role of China was not so much that globalization lifted a large number of people or capitalism lifted a large number of people from poverty. If you look at at least neoliberal capitalism since the 19th, uh, 80s, large number of people ha are far worse off than they were before. Um, but there are a small number of winners. And if you look at the winners of globalization, they were those who did not listen to the West, right? So it's not Venezuela that uh, won. Venezuelans, you know, Venezuelan leadership listened to every single, every last letter of the neoliberal program. It is China that and India, uh, to a large degree, that benefited from globalization because these were um, large. So these are their features. They are large systems, large successful governments, successful institutionally successful large governments that had their own vision uh, that did not listen but they took advantage of the new changes and and that the, uh, globalization. Um, and I think that that's the lesson to be learned. Do not you cannot become a creature of Western run economic system, or you will be a Venezuela uh, and a failed state rather than uh, uh, you know don't look to China. You can't be China that way. Uh, you have to, you have to be large, right? The small uh, economies tend to be more dependent. So you have to be independent, you have to be large, you have to have internal unity uh, and strong institutional design um, that, uh, that allows you to, um, to have your own, own sort of internal dynamic um, that can sort of 
by which you can negotiate with, with world powers. Um, so the short answer to your question is, I believe that economic independence is um, absolutely crucial, um, but it needs to be thought of as piece of a larger puzzle because economy is a very, uh, you know, it's a very tricky business. It's like very much, uh, it's a independent, interdependence is necessary for modern economies to exist. So therefore, what's necessary is a larger omatic vision in which societies, not just one or two strongmen, but societies uh, think of the, these strategies, economic strategies to become independent, to become, to, to engage in business more with other Muslims uh, than with non-Muslims, uh, or rather than with hostile non-Muslims, rather, right? And so... Uh, this needs to be, in my view, a civilizational strategy rather than a merely economic strategy. But other than that, I, I believe that economic uh, region sort of uh, built, uh, economic regionalism should be an important part of this policy. I wonder whether, um, so you've, you've described those two models, um, the model of Venezuela and the model of China, but what about the model of a fail in North Korea. If an Islamic government, if an caliphate tries to extricate, tries to separate itself from uh, the global trading system, um, it is going to fail probably in this in this modern era. And there is just too much dependency between the current nation states, whether that's Turkey or Pakistan or Saudi Arabia, and external trade. Um, are you when you call for economic autarky or, or a form of regionalism where Muslim countries uh, they uh, serve each other's economic uh, fulfillment? Isn't there a danger that uh, that many elites in the Muslim world would just see this as as too idealistic and 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 that's where the project fails. It fails on uh, an assumption that. Um, an Islamic government is going to be any better than uh, the uh, the half-baked, the, the, the problematic neoliberal projects that many Muslim countries have subscribed to. Of course, there is a big difference between the Muslim world and North Korea. Um, in just in terms of size and diversity and resources, uh, and that's number one. Number two, I don't think that North Korea is a model at all. Um, there may be something to learn from um, the need for independence, but I don't think that Muslims historically have ever, you know, stopped trading with non-Muslims, right? We're talking mm -hmm. about, uh, that's why I qualified, but I said that hostile non-Muslim powers as opposed to friendly non-Muslim powers with whom we need to develop ways of coexisting uh, and strengthening the initiatives that do exist. So, but but one thing, I guess, if, if you allow me to change gears a little bit, what I have said uh, here is really just one voice in an omatic uh, discourse and uh, imagination that the omatic institute wants to amplify, uh, to discipline, to, to, to turn into a discipline rather, I should say, uh, so that these discussions are taking place uh, and they are multiplied and they are critically reviewed 
so what I have said, much of what I've said is one person's vision, but the point of the Omatic Institute is not to amplify one person's vision, right? It's rather that we have this um, tremendous history and tradition. We have an obligation to each other as Muslims. We have great threats to our fundamental existence, to our sacred places in the world, to our the lives of Muslims. Um, we cannot not do something. On the other hand, we have great opportunities. We as Muslims today are uh, resourceful uh, in, in many respects. Uh, we are beneficiaries in some, in some significant respects of globalization and, um, and the current world. Of course, we have lost a lot, but let us use the benefits that we have. The fact that we have Muslim scholars and academics and social scientists and ulama everywhere, and then we have Muslims today that are more interconnected than ever before, um, and use that to design better institutions of Islamic governance, of Islamic interconnectivity, um, and amplify the best solutions that are coming out of disciplined studies to Islamic economics, for example, I would not want to pontificate because that's not my field. But um, I would like to ask questions and I would love uh, Muslim uh, economists who are interested in what we have just talked about uh, to, to come join us, uh, support us at the Omatics Institute. The same goes for Muslims who are doing political science or uh, anthropology or social sciences or Islamic studies. Um, who, who feel that they have something to contribute to nomadic discourse. Um, that's what this institute is about. Oh, finally, if I can then ask you about uh, the Omatics Institute, uh, if one, if someone wanted to get involved, how do they get involved? And actually, who are you looking out for? Um, you've described some areas there. So are you principally looking for uh, Muslims involved in the social sciences, in 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 Islamic studies, is is that uh, your focus at the moment? I would say that we're looking for everybody and anybody who is uh, committed to an omatic vision, who uh, think that they have something to contribute. Um, they could be story writers for children. Um, they could be, um, you know, mothers raising uh, raising children or um, uh, people in really any walk of life who believe that they have something to contribute uh, to come join us. Um, uh, more specifically, you know, we have defined certain projects or certain initial projects in, in our in our phase as we launch. And there we do, we are looking for people who are in, in uh, who fall in roughly four areas, people who were interested in Islamic governance, political theory, uh, people who are interested in Islamic society and social harmony, unification, solidarity, whether dealing with problems, you know, Muslim, uh, uh, you know, things of racism or ethnic, intra-ethnic problems, um, immigrants, refugees, those are all things where uh, Muslims are needed uh, and Muslim uh, thought is, is needed to bring out sort of the nomadic solidarity um, there is, of course, the discipline of Islamic economics, one that we are looking forward to building up um, 
and um, perhaps last, last but not least, uh, people who are interested in Islamic studies, Islamic norms, or generally the ulama, tulab al-ilm, sharia, who are interested in developing those aspects of Islamic tradition. Um, you could visit our current website, umaticscolloquium.org, which has these areas, some of these areas listed and where you could register and contact us. And one of the things that we are doing, we have a team of people who are uh, collecting people. That's the most important resource that we have. So we, in fact, have people who will reach out to you uh, if you give us your contact, uh, express your interest and tell us your areas of interest and expertise. And uh, we'll try to figure out where you fit in. Right. And, and are you looking out for experts? So someone who's, uh, you know, a, a, a graduate of or a PhD of, of a particular discipline, or are you also entertaining and looking out for, for students who are starting out in their uh, academic careers? Mostly the former. At this point, we're looking for experts um, and people who have sort of a better idea of uh, what what they want to do and 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 they have an expertise. Uh, we do also encourage students to contact us uh, to 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 attend our colloquia. Um, and we hope that in the coming year or so we'll be um, rolling out programs for students as well, uh, reading lists and uh, resources for people to um, so for people to uh, envision their own programs, their their own automatic trajectory, if you will. Dr. Ovamir Anjum, Jazakallah for uh, your uh, really insightful discussion today, and uh, I hope to invite you back on to talk about some of these themes further, inshallah. I'd love to come back. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that episode and found it interesting. If you did, please share this episode and the podcast with others. You may also want to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. And do remember to leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We also have a Telegram group. You're welcome to join that. Uh, all links are in the show notes below. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 